you'll pray with me and we'll go ahead and get started. Our Father, we dedicate this time to you. We lift it up to you and know that apart from your spirit, it would be just another meeting. It would just be another discussion. But we give it to you, Lord, and ask that you transform it into a moment where somehow you touch us and we draw close to you. Lord, I confess that I'm inadequate and that apart from your work or your will, no amount of striving can accomplish can accomplish the deeds that you've called us to. So, Father, I, I pray that you pour out your spirit in this time. Lord, that you open our hearts to hear from your word. I pray that you send the Holy Spirit to make us able to believe what it is that you say, to help us to understand your words, and then give us faith to believe, to walk in light of your truth. It's for your glory we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. This evening, although we have like six churches left or so, maybe we'll do two just because knowing my own pace and the sort of things that could be said for each one, we'll just kind of, that'll probably be about as far as we get. But my prayer is that at the end of this, the idea is that at the end of this, between the ways we've described the book of Revelation, this introduction to it and the introduction to the prologue, which is an introduction. So the intro to the intro would be something that you could take away and say, I at least get some ideas of what's going on in this book. I at least see that there are recurring themes in this book and that they have connections with the New Testament and the greater canon of Scripture. And that you can begin to identify those and pick up the book of Revelation for yourself and and read through it. And, okay, so maybe I don't get this chapter entirely, but I can see where Jesus is in control, where God is running history where the divine will is never thwarted and that this life that we're called to, this eternal life that we're called to, this resurrection that will be, this life with Christ that begins now, that is inaugurated, this end times that has already begun, that as you read Revelation, you see the fulfillment of the things that God had promised in the Old Testament, the fulfillment to his people, that that's that's what the revelation is communicating, is that God's promises are always fulfilled. And that when you read through this book, you see the way that God is saying, that Jesus is saying, these are how these things are being fulfilled. This is how this is happening. This is the way that everything, every word of the Lord that was ever given to his people, that word comes true. That comes true in me. And that comes true for you, his people who overcome So I'll just take a second to review briefly a little bit about what we said last week. That when it comes to the churches, we are talking about seven historical churches in Asia Minor. These were real people in real cities that they are historical assemblies of believers to whom Christ is communicating something about their behavior in their time, but at the same time that these seven represent 
the universal church, both in their time and in ours. We can read what he's communicating to them and understand that these things still hold true for us. We talked about the fact that um, the messages he's sending come in these components, these component parts that can be pretty easily identified and that they relate both forward and backward, that they relate to, for the most part, his self-identification when he says, write to the angel of such and such church. These are the things that this person says, and this person is Jesus in one form or another describing himself, that they relate to something that he had said in the first chapter, and they relate to things that are on later in Revelation. And that they usually have something to do, I'll point out this evening, that they have something to do quite often with the content of his message to that church, the commendation of the rebuke. So with Ephesus, we saw he says, I'm the one who stands in the midst of the, the lampstands. And then at the end, he basically told them, and I'm going to take yours away if you don't change. The self-description sets up some part of the message in the content usually that there's usually uh, a commendation and then a rebuke, that there are a couple of churches who don't get any commendation, there are a couple churches that don't get any rebuke. Not all of the churches have all seven pieces. We talked briefly about what the angel of the church might be, whether or not that's a human or what we typically think of as a spirit being, went briefly through some of the possibilities there. And I'm rehashing this for the most part because we're going to talk about it again, just to reprime you for that. We talked about the meaning of overcoming as defeating personal sin, standing firm against compromise, about holding the testimony of Jesus even in the face of death. I briefly, really briefly, ran you through the meaning of he who has an ear let him hear, and that Matthew 13 was an important text to understand that Jesus uses that phrase, especially when he speaks in symbols like parables, in order to uh, call his followers to obedience and to indicate that not all will understand the truth presented to them. That Jesus calls his elect to keep his teachings in obedience while knowing full well that those without ears to hear will be hardened by hearing the same truth at the same time. That when asked, you recall in Matthew 13, that when Jesus is asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He says, so that hearing they won't hear. And seeing, they won't see. He basically says, so I can tell the truth and they'll just get more hardened. But to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. So he makes a distinction, even in his ministry, that when he's speaking in parables, it's specifically so that everybody won't understand. And likewise, he uses this phrase at the end of his parables, let him who has an ear hear. And so he continues that forward as he's speaking symbolically to these churches, knowing full well that in the midst of these churches are people who are not his. That's why he can make distinctions about those who will overcome and those who will not. And he calls out to those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Hear what I'm telling you. And for those who have the ability, those who God has granted ears to hear, those people will turn and respond to his message. Whereas those who have not yet been given that, Perhaps this is their call. Perhaps the Spirit is going to grant them ears to hear. Otherwise, they're being all the more hardened and being set up for the very judgments that Jesus is speaking about. And we'll go through, especially today when we talk about Thyatira, 
about a particular example of those of those types of people. So those are sort of the things we talked about. We talked about Ephesus, that when he spoke to the Ephesian church, he commended them for being good at upholding truth and discerning error and false teachers, that they didn't put up with false apostles and that they hated the Nicolaitans and that, that, was, that they were good at keeping out doctrinal error and driving away false teachers but that they were in serious trouble about to lose their place, their lampstand, in the midst of the lampstands because they had left their first love. And we briefly describe what that may or may not be because it's not totally clear. It could be love of the brethren, could be love specifically for Jesus. Scholars debate differently, but whatever that love, the object of the affection of their heart, whatever it should have been, they had stopped doing it. They no longer had it. And so he calls them back to their first works. And uh, that will be that will be something that will be worth remembering, that he calls them back to their first works. He offers them the tree of life for overcoming. And as we saw, this is symbolic of eternal life. What we understand from the Old Testament, that Adam and Eve were driven away from the tree of life, lest they eat it and live forever. The Bible is very specific what that means. And Jesus uses that same language to describe that the person who overcomes sin, the person who stays faithful, will inherit eternal life. That is, that is the promise that Christ offers his followers. The key theme of the message to the Ephesians is that without love, the gospel has not done its work in the church, and you are not a church. It's similar to what the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians. We'll be getting to that soon in our main Sunday morning messages, I'm sure. But basically, if a church does not practice love, then it's worthless as a church. As correct as their doctrine may be, as as careful as they are to avoid error, just like the Apostle Paul says, um, without any of those things, without love, you can have all those things and without love still be nothing. And so Jesus reaffirms that specifically to the Ephesian church. Without love, you are nothing. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to take your lampstand. I'll, I'll make you nothing. I'll make you no church. Okay, so that kind of catches us up to where we were. And let's see here. The next one is the church at Smyrna. We'll briefly read that. That's chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's a rather brief one comparatively to the others. And you'll notice that it seems to lack something that most of the other messages to the churches. Did you hear anything negative about them? 
Now, the Lord Jesus doesn't say anything about any shortcoming among these people. He has no rebuke of the, of the, oh, right, yeah, here it is, just north of Ephesus. You'll recall that last week I said that it appears that Jesus, looking at this map slide, that Jesus started with Ephesus as a central hub of Christianity and of kind of the Roman area, and he kind of goes up the coastline and then follows this major highway down as he goes through the seven churches in the in that area. So modern-day Izmir, Smyrna, uh, big port city, they still have really large ruins right in the middle. The city has just grown up all around it, and a lot of the uh, ruins are still there. Not like Ephesus, I showed you last week, where Ephesus has all these great ruins, but they are far away from the port city of uh, Kushadasi. Does that sound right? Kushadasi, is that the name? That was, I think that was the name. Anyhow, the port city that's a few miles away because the river that ran out, the river that ran right next to Ephesus and was the mouth right into the water, it, that harbor, it eventually silted up a few hundred years after the Romans kind of left the area and stopped dredging it and making sure it was there. Now the coastline is miles away, but Izmir is still Smyrna. Ancient Smyrna, modern-day Izmir is still right there uh, and still a major thriving city. Okay, so looking at them, we'll notice that, first of all, like Philadelphia in the next chapter, they're the only two churches that receive messages from Jesus that have nothing bad to say about them. This church, unlike all the others except for Philadelphia, apparently was doing quite well in maintaining its witness for Christ. The key theme of this church's message is, however, it's about to get tough, and persecution will lead to resurrection. It's unclear, as we read that, you will notice that there is no mention in his message to the church at Smyrna that they had already endured anything, unlike the Ephesian church, where he said, I know your endurance and and that you don't suffer with these evil people and that you've been you've been through it none of that with smyrna none of the you've been tested and you've been tried and i know that you've endured and you've stood up for my name's sake and so forth so on none of that at all just that uh, i know your tribulation and poverty so it may be that they are dealing with some amount of difficulty because the local Jewish synagogue, as you will see there, he talks about the local Jewish community continues to cause them problems. It may be that they have not yet had to deal with physical punishment yet. He says he understands that they're poor, that they're poor as a people, your poverty, and then he commends them that in fact you're actually rich. Jesus informs these people that that despite their financial or the slanderous attacks from Satan and those who unknowingly or sometimes knowingly accomplish Satan's will, these people who maintain their testimony for Christ enjoy a spiritual wealth. So their poverty, they're clearly not doing well as far as their finances. But despite that poverty, despite the difficulty that is that naturally comes along with that, these people... These people are actually wealthy. He then goes on to describe himself as the, the first and the last, the one who's, who was dead and came to life. Jesus calls himself the beginning and the end, the one who has knowledge of and control over the events of history. 
he sees and understands all of the works and sufferings of his church in Smyrna. Some people will endure lengthy imprisonment, he tells them, and some will even be killed. But because Jesus died and came to life, he is able to assure his people that death is not the end. Because he is the beginning and the end, he is able to comfort his people with a sure promise of reward. So as he tells them that some of them are about to be thrown into prison and that some of them are going to be tested and that some of them will have tribulation, that if they're faithful unto death, I give you a sure promise. And I can do that because I know the beginning from the end and I was dead once. I know how that works. I died. I was among the dead. I understand. But I came back to life. This resurrection thing is for real. This is not just some pie-in-the-sky idea. This is not some we wish it were true. This is true. I died, and I'm alive again. And so will you be. One of the passages that it made me think of was 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58, as Paul is discussing the resurrection, since Jesus is making this, this point to them, that... Paul is explaining to the Corinthians, no, this is, not, this is not a fake thing. Hey, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, we're all in trouble here. This is all a big waste of time. In fact, it's worse than that. You're still in your sin, and we who are apostles, man, we've gone around the world taking beatings and poverty for no reason. He tells them, especially around verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul takes the same approach and says, yes, resurrection is for real and it is going to happen and this corruptible, perishable body will be transformed. So stay steadfast. Stay steadfast in your works of the Lord, in your obedience of faith because imper- I'm sorry, perishable will put on imperishable. The same thing that Jesus is assuring them. <clears throat> he offers them the crown of life, you'll see that if they're faithful unto death. Now, he highlights for them that there is persecution coming. You may have only dealt with a very small amount. He says, I see your tribulation. And that's not a small word, usually. We don't really know how much they're suffering. It doesn't seem like they've suffered very much, except for, perhaps financially, that they're dealing with some sort of ostracism, some sort of difficulty especially from the Jewish community who has who clearly is giving them problems but I, I do want to make a special note here that that may affect some theology and may affect some personal beliefs so I'll try to tread a little bit carefully because this passage evokes some pretty strong statements against at least that particular community of ethnic Jews, and there's been a history of people claiming to be Christians and responding to the Jewish community in a way that is not godly. 
because of because of some biblical passages or misunderstandings of biblical passages. But what I do want to highlight is Romans two twenty eight through twenty nine. Paul says, "For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man." but from God. So Jesus can can and does here in this passage make a very clear point that being a Jew does not make you God's people. You can he even said it to them to their face. John 8:31 through 47. So Jesus um, they answered him, "We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free?" Jesus answered them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father." And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man has, who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born out of, this is probably porneia in the Greek, sexual immorality, Probably a slam against Jesus' virgin birth. We were not born out of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. Because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. The end of that, when he wraps it up, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So here, Jesus was speaking to a group of Jewish people in his time on earth. And in Revelation, he's speaking about a group of Jewish people who are basically doing the same thing. This children of Satan could be applied to anybody who does not believe or does not hear and does not believe the word of God. Jesus draws a stark line between those who are his and hear his word and believe him and those who do not. And that's hard to take sometimes, even though he says it straight out of his own mouth, even though he says that about people when he's talking to the church, that I know that this assembly of people, they're really just an assembly of Satan. That's a little tough sometimes. We don't like to think about that that sort of thing. It, but we have to remember, and I think that the takeaway from it is that behind antagonism to the gospel is a hate of God and a hate of the truth. And behind that is a real live spiritual being named Satan 
who pushes people in that direction, who manipulates people and their, their desires, who deceives them. Deceives them so far that even someone like the Apostle Paul thinks he is doing God's will before he converts. Believes he, Saul of Tarsus, believes he is doing God's will to kill believers. How we think about, how we think about other people ought to be affected first and foremost by do they hear God's word and do they believe? Like that is the chief sin, the chief problem that people are dealing with in the world is not hearing God's word and believing, not believing in Jesus. All the other thing is that every other thing is an outgrowth from that. Okay, I tried to do that delicately. I don't know how well it worked. Um, so he closes by telling the church at Smyrna that you need to be faithful to death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now this concept of first and second death is pretty straightforward. Jesus in John chapter 3 when he speaks to Nicodemus talks about first and second birth. And Nicodemus doesn't understand and Jesus scolds him. What? You call yourself a teacher of Israel and you don't get what I'm saying? How can I tell you spiritual things? I can't even tell you earthly things. This is not, it's not as though Jesus has come up with this concept or John has come up with this concept specifically for this book, Revelation, but it's something born directly out of Jesus' teaching. In Matthew, he warns his disciples about this almost the identical thing when he sends them out in groups to evangelize and he warns them specifically about persecution. Look with me at Matthew chapter 10. I brought up this passage previously, but because it's about persecution and Jesus warning his people, his followers. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 28. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus, during his earthly ministries, talks about there's more than one way to die. And the person you need to fear is not the person threatening your life here on earth. The person you need to fear is God, the one who actually can destroy you totally. And so the Revelation picks this up in chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus identifies 
well, John identifies from his visionary experience what he means by the second death, that this eternal torment. The overcoming saint has his name written in the book of life and need never fear the death that God brings upon those outside his covenant. The second death, the lake of fire, that place of eternal torment will not touch the faithful in Christ. For this reason, Jesus can appeal to his followers to face death with courage because they will stand again with him, never to see the death that God brings or the wrath that God brings. Well, pause after that church. Any questions or thoughts? Okay. Well, I'll move along then. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and skip over the church in Pergamum. You'll kind of understand why. It, well, we can just read it real quick and read the church in Thyatira. You will see how similar the two rebukes are. In verse 12 of chapter 2, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You see, he comes as an avenging sort of warring judge the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword he gives them a commendation that i know you're in a bad place a really bad place and that you've you've held out well even in the face of the worst in the face of what we would now call martyrdom that someone would hold fast to death but i have something against you and it has to do with Deception that causes other people to stumble in two key areas. One is idolatry, and one is some sort of sexual promiscuity that appear, appears to have some relationship to the two of them. Unless you repent, I'm going to come, and it's not going to be pretty. But if you overcome, and another symbol of eternal life. So now let's read... The message to the church in Thyatira, and you'll see how similar these two messages are. And verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. See? Good stuff. It, these people, just like, just like Pergamum, Jesus appears as a sort of fiery judge ready to execute judgment on his people. But the first thing he says to them is, here's this good stuff about you. 
Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Very similar to Pergamum, the letter to Thyatira is, Here I am, I'm a judge, and I will judge you. I have already judged that you do certain things well and have held them well. However, I'm going to bring punishment as a judge against this other series of things. So repent, and then those who overcome will receive a reward. His self-description, as I just mentioned, is the flames of fire and the feet of burnished bronze that we saw in chapter 1, this son of man vision that John had. And Jesus speaks to his church as the judge of nations, the son of man. He comes to render judgment on a church that, despite all of its positive attributes, is seriously compromised. In contrast to Ephesus, who needs to repent and go back to their first works, Thyatira has latter works that exceed their first works. And Jesus specifically mentions their love. Let's see, what were they? Love, faith, service, patient endurance. There may be some clue in there as to what the love that the Ephesians were supposed to have, what those works of love that theirs were supposed to look like. Perhaps there's some clue in there that we can kind of retroject back on to the letter of Ephesians in this letter to Thyatira. He then rebukes them. Like Pergamum, the church at Thyatira has permitted a group of teachers to deceive the people and lead some astray. Jezebel is who is named, and it would be hard to it would be hard to say that this is a specific individual, that this is the name of one person. We know that from the Old Testament, first Kings, in the time of Elijah, the wife of King Ahab. His wife, Queen Jezebel, was the archetypical seductress who leads God's people astray into idolatry. And so Elijah, is actually, as, as a prophet to the people of God, actually spends a lot of time having to deal with the effects of her work on the king. She seduces and leads the leader of the people astray, and then all the people follow along into it. Similarly, as an archetype, there's probably some individual... And a large series of followers, a large group of followers, whom the people of the church of Thyatira have permitted to take part of the leadership astray and go and take people with them into some sort of practice. Now, what that practice was, we're not entirely clear. 
but it probably relates to the typical ancient Roman trade guild practice that Jerry has mentioned in connection with the first Corinthians discussions that in ancient Rome it was very customary especially in larger cities for family groups and for ethnic groups to be broken up in their cities by trade guilds so we think about medieval guilds and it's similar it's what developed into them but they're social associations they're family oriented associations they're part business part part religious group and part retirement system it's hard to uh, encapsulate all of them but they are these trade guilds are if my father were a say a blacksmith it was probably true that his brother was a blacksmith and their father was a blacksmith and so their families because once you acquire the equipment and the knowledge to do that you don't give it up because it's expensive and it's hard to acquire to begin with so it gets passed down you don't really get to it's not like you go off to college and you get to choose it's just not for most people there wasn't a lot of social mobility back then for most people the way they helped protect themselves and to take shares of local market was to form these organizations these guilds wherein if i'm sick and i can't finish a job you i know i have cousins who can finish the job and the money stays in the family well all of these trade guilds also just happen to have some patron deity one or, or another and it would be customary every so often to celebrate major events like a new child or say part of a funeral expense would all involve your family and fellow members of the trade guild who would come together and there would be some sort of worship activity usually a sacrifice that sort of thing so it would be very difficult as someone in a in one of those vocations to not want to participate because it would have been normal everyone did it your whole family goes to these things and it would be very easy to practice some to be convinced that you really didn't care it's not you still believe in Jesus but i just go to these trade guild meetings and i just put my money in with them many of these things that jerry has already talked about recently with the with the first corinthians sermons but it would be very easy to practice some form of syncretism where i can still have jesus and the gospel but i go to these trade guild meetings where there's an idol set up and i know they just roasted this calf to our guild's particular patron deity and we're all eating and celebrating but i can't rock the boat many scholars believe that in in some respects that's what he's pointing to is that there are people who have come along and told the members of the church in Thyatira that it's not that bad it's okay you can have this and that and also that you can practice the local cultic sexual rituals that it just doesn't it's not all that important you know in your mind that god is god and these things are nothing and you can go ahead and participate so the pressure is there and there's obviously some group of people it seems that perhaps Jezebel is the name for this practice this 
syncretistic urge that some people were practicing. Throughout the Bible, the idea of worshiping an idol instead of God and adultery or whoring, I'll say it that way, whoring are linked very closely together. And so that's probably something that we have here. So Jesus warns those people in the church who are involved in that. The leaders and the members who have been led astray, Jesus warns them. One, I've already done something to some of you. Sometimes, and this is a startling passage if you read it. I gave her time to repent, verse 12, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. This is one of those passages where you see Jesus saying to his church, I will spank my own kids, and it will hurt you. And we tend not to think of Jesus that way. I don't like thinking about Jesus that way. It's not... It's not a fun idea, but as as king and as judge, at some point you draw a line. Now, he's given space to repent, and in fact, he's going to continue to give some space. You'll see, he says, I've already told her, but she refuses. Now I'm warning you, and I'm telling you I'm warning you, that I'm going to, the next step is some punishment. It's hard to think of that perhaps in our contemporary context, but if Jesus will do it then, there is nothing to say that Jesus will not do it to a church and those people who abuse his goodness and patience now. And so this stands as a stark warning that the Lord is, I've said it before, but he's not to be trifled with. And I know that I certainly have have tested his patience on many occasions. But he's not... Unconditional love means that you have to discipline your children sometimes. And Jesus shows us that here with his church, his bride. He wants a pure bride, and that's all he will have. He will purge out those who defile her and it's it's a tough warning try to say this carefully so because it's it's a tough thing to say jesus punishes people who who go who are part of his church or at least part of the visible church but i don't know what else to do with this right here other than to say jesus punishes people sometimes who are members of his visible church because they do not repent and obey him that's just the face value. That's just the, that's just what it says right there. And he says that because he loves his church, because what they are doing damages not only those in that local assembly, but listen to the next verse. I will strike her and her children dead. And I know I sort of made this off-the-cuff reference the first week to what would Jesus do sometimes? It's kill, you, kill your children. Okay. What... What I meant is this, I was referencing this passage, and most likely what he means here, speaking symbolically, is I will kill, now that part I think is true, I will kill off, get rid of, these false teachers, 
and all of the disciples that these false teachers have made. I will get rid of them. I will purge them. So maybe it is... I. If I understand the sickbed, I will throw in the previous or the yeah in the previous verse, and I behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery to mean that they will suffer some sort of physical ailment. I have a very difficult time interpreting the next verse to mean anything else other than, and if they keep it up, they will die. Now I'm open to other understandings, but that's. The reason, however, is not because the Lord takes pleasure in doing things like that, either making someone sick or punishing them with death, but for the next verse, and all the churches will know, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus intends... Apparently with this church, and I would venture to say with any church, that I will make known that I'm the one who runs the church. I will make it clear to my people. And if that requires me doing something that is unpalatable, I will still do it to make it known that I am the one who knows your hearts and minds. That I am the one who walks among you. Jesus gives a very stern warning here, one that's a, a bit difficult on the surface to to take and and feel like it's you know the Walmart Jesus. That picture of Buddy Jesus is really is skewed when you get to this this message to Thyatira. You, you kind of have to throw it out the door, and and the Son of Man begins to begins to show himself. But this is as that judge, as that one who will. Oh, who will dash his enemies. And that's exactly what he goes on to when he makes his promises to the overcomers, the one who conquers. He promises the overcomer authority, rule, scepter, and a morning star. And if you think that... If you think back to the Old Testament, one of the great messianic passages of the Old Testament, Psalm 2. Just turn there with me. It'll be clear from where the Lord is speaking, what reference he's using. This will also be used in Acts by different speakers in Acts early on. Because it was so obvious to them after after Jesus' resurrection what this passage was talking about. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now think about the situation in Thyatira that there's a group of people corrupting the other people, corrupting his church, that they're... They have their own schemes and agenda. The Lord sits in the heavens. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, this part... And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It seems fairly clear that 
Jesus is referencing that in verse 27, and he will rule, the overcomer will rule with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Seems fairly clear that he's referencing this same promise that the father made to him, this messianic promise of ruling over the nations. Jesus coming as the son of man, judge, speaking to this church about those who are trying to corrupt it and plot against him, that just like he will strike them down, if they do not turn, if they do not turn, he will strike them down. In the same way, he promises the overcomer, you, will, you have beaten them, and at the same time, I'm giving you the authority to rule over the nations, just like I've been given authority. So Jesus promises both the power and the ability to overcome these problems, both now and into the future. He also promises a morning star, which is a little bit interesting in that it would be hard to, without a little bit of a search, to figure out where does he get this? Where is this coming from? Especially in relationship to judging and ruling what does morning star have to do with that? Once again, we have to go back to the Old Testament, and I hope you're getting the theme that understanding Revelation requires understanding and familiarity with the Old Testament and a little bit less CNN news. Go back, not forward, and you'll get a, you'll get a better idea of what the book is communicating. So in Numbers 24, remember he's been talking about Balaam and Balak, sexual immorality, false teachers who will come along and attempt to deceive the people and lead them into sexual immorality. The same sort of thing that happened in Balaam and Balak episode with Israel. That's exactly where you find this passage, is in Numbers 24, starting in verse 14. And now, behold, I am going to my people... Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So this rising star is the Messiah. He sees the Messiah coming up, rising up out of it. He has a vision of the Messiah as a, as a rising star, a morning star coming up. And you see how it's equated with the star that is not yet near shall come out of Jacob, and its scepter shall rise out of Israel. So it's probable that this is the background, what Jesus is talking about, that I will give the overcomer the same authority I've been granted from the Father, the same authority that's been promised to me to rule the nations. That's the same authority I'm granting to you. I appear as judge, you will appear as judges with me. It's a great promise that the Lord offers His people in the midst of the desire to compromise, the impulse to feel compelled by your culture, to feel compelled by 
these other gods, foreign gods, these sorts of things that I know that sometimes I, I look around and I say, I don't know whether or not God's upset about me doing that or not. Like, there are so many things that the Bible doesn't speak directly to that we have to discern His will. We have to carefully walk to make sure that somehow it's not compromised. There are there are areas of our lives where we just take it as norm because that's how our parents grew, that's how the people around us are living. And despite all that, the Lord may say, hey, you've kind of swallowed something here. And unless you give that up, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to go to work. I'm going to have to operate. I'm going to have to practice some triage or something on you. So I pray that as we look at this message in particular, that we see that the Lord's sovereignty is extended over the church and the nations, that what He is offering, the one who stands firm in the face of compromise, is to rule with Him. And that those who compromise, well, they're not fit to rule. How can you be a judge over something that you've given up to? How do you punish those with whom you've committed yourself, you've committed sin with them. When you join with them, you make yourself unfit. Once again, I'm not not saying that the Bible is teaching a works righteousness, but that Jesus here is communicating those who will choose to stand against me on the losing side have no part of me. And how can I make those people, how can I put a scepter in the hand of someone who shook their fist against me? I'll stop there. I guess closing remarks for the whole study would be something to the effect of principles of reading through Revelation. There's a chorus of voices on how to read it. And I have demonstrated, I believe, to some small extent, one way to read at least these opening passages and to take a look into the later passages to see how they connect up. To see that, one, the book of Revelation is not disjoined from the rest of the New Testament of the Bible. That as we look at the imagery and even the wording, it's connected very closely. Because it's the same God and it's the same story. It's Jesus summing it all up in many respects. And so we can look at those opening parts and see the images and the words and the connections backward and see some of the connections forward. What may challenge us and challenge some very popular views on how to approach Revelation when you start thinking in that way. Because instead of trying to create diagrams and charts with years on them and things like that, you begin to think, what are the themes that are retold? What themes of persecution and overcoming are retold? of deception and wicked people whom are energized. I'll just drop this one instance. There's a synagogue of Satan who do awful things. There is a woman, Jezebel, who corrupts the saints. Those images might reappear later in Revelation, like a woman who attempts to corrupt the saints and drinks their blood and is drunk on them. Just throw that out there. There are themes that are going to recur that show up in that opening to prime the reader for what's to come. 
And we could maybe down the road have a lengthier time and more discussion about deeper into the book and, and kind of go forward into it more. But for now, I, I pray that that's been at least a helpful thing to draw you in to take a look at it. So the next time you reach that part in your read through the Bible in a year plan, you don't just look at it. All right, so here's this one. I'll get through this in a week, Lord willing, quickly. But think about the way that the Lord is calling us to persevere based on the fact that we know that He is exalted reigning in the heavens and that there is a promise of a world to come where justice is meted out, where those who persevere receive the reward of their master. And that that's already begun in a large part, that it's been initiated, that the book of Revelation is not just about future events, it's about here and now, as well as past events. I believe I showed you some of that, that there are parts of it that are clearly about past events. I'll stop right there, and if there are any thoughts or questions, I would be happy to entertain them. I was going to say I, I appreciate the, um, the way in which you approach the text and, and trying to tell us and, and really sort of less interpretation, more of a this is what it this is what it says, and we just take the words at face value. Um, this is what it says, and I think sometimes the the challenge is looking through a Western perspective at the Scripture, um, and particularly a democratic society, as opposed to where there's a ruler. And there's someone who has the right to kill you if they choose to, keep you alive if they choose to. Um, and so it's, it becomes hard to to swallow some of those things in, in our culture. But um, I, I appreciate that you just laid out the way it is. And I, um, one of the things you said was that, and I think it's really stressing how important holiness and righteousness is to the king. Um, and that there can be no mixture of the pure and the vile, no matter how small the impurity is. Um, I used to have a pastor who was, used to be our pastor since passed away. He used to say it's either pure or it's impure. And so therefore, the soap that's 99% pure is actually impure soap. Um, because there is no 99% pure. It's either pure or it's not. And, uh, so I appreciate the way you approach this. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough call to know that the Lord is demanding as demanding as he is, but he has the right to be that demanding since especially in as much as he stood in each of our shoes and and then some and did not disobey, relying on the Holy Spirit just like he calls us to. So you're right, it, it's, a, it's a tough call and I... Uh, I have been challenged in more than one way in preparing and trying to bring this. And and the Lord has done his own kicking me in the pants. And so I assure you that <laughs> there is, although I stand up here and give this presentation, it's, it certainly is not out of some attempt to communicate that I have achieved the things that I feel like he's calling us to. At several points as I was especially the more passionate moments where I really felt the Lord was trying to communicate a certain point. I thought to myself afterwards listening, I was like, wow, um, 
I'm glad there is no closed circuit monitor feed into your thought life because that everyone can just tune into channel 37 and there's Todd's thought life because wow failure but I, I appreciate you saying that because it is I really believe that it is the Lord's challenge to us to call to purity to call a, a call to seeing him large and beautiful and loving and worthy of the call and the demand that he makes on our lives and so I didn't mean I guess I didn't mean to emphasize the whole he can kill you if he wants thing but it is true nevertheless but I did just that when it comes down to it the Lord actually communicates that to some people and and it's it's tough because it's rare that we think about that but he is just if he decides to do that it will be just and when he punishes people it's not just for those people it's not just because he's mad but it's for it's for his body's sake and uh, like in that particular passage it's so the churches will know that I am the one who searches the hearts and minds so he, he does it to for our benefit so it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing to be called to holiness but he deserves it and he has the right to make that claim yeah Lena Am I going to have a class on the rest of Revelation? Well, that will largely depend on what the pastors and leaders... That's true. That's true. She is closely connected. Um, uh, That would be something that I would be willing to consider and, and discuss... If if the peoples want it enough, then I imagine the leaders will hear it. You're welcome. It's been my joy. It's scary. I t- Marla, she's very kind, and almost every time before we come there, she'll say, "How do you feel? You feel good? No, you don't feel good about it." No, I feel like this one's going to be a stink bomb. (laughs) No. So I I appreciate the affirmation and the encouragement. If it weren't for the Lord, then it it just wouldn't happen anyhow. And if it weren't for His, His desire to make His word known, then I would regularly lay a stink bomb. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful for anything that comes out and is, and is to His glory. Not to Jesus juke the question, but or the or the thanks. Just that I appreciate it. it it's it's been it's been my pleasure. And at times, uh, almost almost every time we're driving from the house to here, I'm just like, this is not going to work out this time. This week, I am not ready. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are steadfast in your love, in your faithfulness, that you keep everything that you say. Lord, we thank you for the promise that we have in Christ. 
the promise of resurrection, the promise of eternally seeing your face. So Lord, I pray that if we stumble, that you will warn us in love, that you will, if we need it, chastise us in love and restore us to your love. Hold us always close to you. Open up your word. Help us to see you for all that you are. Give us a grand vision of your goodness and your grace. I thank you for your faithfulness to us here. In Jesus' name, amen.